Even looking back to last year, nothing actually grabbed me that much at all throughout the whole year. But a number of films I saw that I did enjoy, um, and sorry, that was the Kindred EP, if I didn't say, and the title track from it by Burial. Probably this show's most played artist. Um, These are the five films that I enjoyed immensely, but have either got no attention or have got terrible attention. So just rapidly... Uh, the Baytown Outlaws is a film due to be released on DVD. I think I don't. I think it bypassed the cinema entirely, and I reviewed it last week and gave it a pretty good score. And given how weak my top ten films are, it could have easily snuck in there. But a good exploitation film with a pretty good cast as well. It's got a couple of big stars: Billy Bob Thornton and Eva Longoria. But it's the uh, the brothers in the movie that actually go off on this road trip and uh, do all manner of shoot 'em up and uh, white trash things throughout the film. It's pretty pretty funny. It's not a nasty, trashy piece of work, but worth catching, entertaining. Uh, pure entertainment I found in Battleship, which was absolutely excoriated by critics as a terrible piece of trash, and I was expecting it to be. But I've said time and again, if a film is actually very amiable and witty and not cynical and hard-edged like something like Bad Boys is really cynical, really treats the audience like dirt. This was quite a homey movie. It was quite nice. Uh, it starred Taylor Kitsch and it proves that not only can Rihanna not sing, she can't act either. And uh, a few other, like Liam Neeson, um, most of the other people are, are vaguely familiar faces but not particularly. And he gets extra kudos for turning the board game Battleships into a movie and actually doing it, which is very impressive. Um, it's very long. It's got lots of pretty decent effects in it, um, but the cast are all likeable and it's a lot wittier than I expected it to be and it passes like a breeze. So another guilty pleasure, as is Total Recall, a much dour film. It wouldn't say it was witty. It got a trashing from the critics. Uh, stars a humorless Colin Farrell in the lead role but most of the men watching will be more than happy with Kate Beckinsale and Jessica Biel occupying the two female roles the thing that annoyed me a little bit about Total Recall was everyone going on about how the Arnold Schwarzenegger film was a classic it wasn't it was a pretty average film but it was iconic looking and it was memorable because of who Arnie was but this is it was this is easily as good a film and given the effects and the setting which shows Australia is a massive penal colony virtually, um, and Britain is the king of the world. It's very enjoyable. Men in Black 3 is a film I had no interest in seeing whatsoever and was surprised. I thought Men in Black 2 was terrible um, and a good example of just repeating a franchise for financial reasons. Why they bothered making this one, I don't know, but I like Josh Brolin a lot. He took on the young Tommy Lee Jones character and Will Smith actually had... A quite startling uh, character development towards the end of the movie, which was unexpected and uh, quite poignant and quite moving. Um, but it was a good, fun film. The villain in it was superb. I'm not sure who played the villain in it, but he was awesome. Uh, very, very uh, fun film. And recently I reviewed Oliver Stone's most entertaining movie since JFK, which is Savages, uh, about a bunch of pot dealers in California taking on Mexican drug cartels. It was. It had a lot of flaws and a lot of very sort of, uh, well, it thought it was um, preaching you the meaning of life and it was a bit 
uh, cringeable when it tried to. But it was a very entertaining action film. And again, Taylor Kitsch. Taylor Kitsch is this weird actor that's turned up in a number of box office bombs, um, such as John Carter, which nearly made it into my list. But I saw John Carter again recently. Uh, the mega budget sci-fi flop from earlier in the year, and yeah, it was it's just a bit too weird, and I kind of find it hard to root for a film that's got whole armies of Jar Jar Binks in them. But Savages, I thought was good, clean fun, not clean at all. It's actually very very racy. Uh, there's a lot of drugs and a lot of sex in it, and John Travolta and Benicio del Toro are excellent in it. Blake Lively, who has to deliver some of the cringy monologues, is very good. And Taylor Kitsch is good fun as well. So it was um, a good lurid tale. Uh, that's my five guilty pleasures. None of those set the world on fire. But passed an amiable couple of hours each. Now into the albums here as well. And before I get to film number 10, I'm going to mention Zero Dark Thirty, which is the latest film by Catherine Bigelow. And coincidentally, it's been released just on the cusp of Oscar awards season. This is a time of year that has annoyingly become a corporatized awards season. Not that the Oscars wasn't corporatized before, but apparently now, if your film isn't released after December, you can't even get a look in as far as Best Picture Oscar goes. And everyone is raving about it. There's critics. It's about uh, the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And um, it's already been put in as a favourite for Best Picture Oscar. Here's, even though I haven't seen it, I'm going to stick my neck on the line and say it's garbage. And the reason is Catherine Bigelow is the most overrated director, even including Wes Anderson, in the world. She's got, basically, she made Point Break in the late 80s, early 90s, which was, it was a pretty dire film, but it was very iconic and very fun. Just an episodic mess of action sequences and goofy characters and a total lack of intelligence that was good fun, largely because of people like Patrick Swayze lending it a little more weight than it deserved, but it was good fun. Then she winds forward nearly 20 years and remakes the same film, but sets it in Iraq and makes the uh, surfboards into bomb disposal people and calls it The Hurt Locker, and she wins Best Picture Oscar. And everyone says it's the greatest thing that's ever been made. And the only reason they did is because her and her ex-husband, James Cameron, hoodwinked the entire world and voting people in America who vote for the Best Picture Oscar, that it was a straight-up bum fight between Avatar, this Megabucks movie, and this low-budget, apparently arty movie, which wasn't an arty movie at all. It was stupid. It was gung-ho. And again, like Point Break, it was just a very badly put together episodic movie with one great sequence, a sniper sequence, and a lot of very obvious and very painfully cliched moments throughout, really badly drawn characters, not a good film at all. And you look back on her filmography and it's dire. She made a really good vampire film called Near Dark, um, but pretty much every other film she's made has been terrible. She made Blue Steel with Jamie Lee Curtis, which is awful. Strange Days was pretty bad. The Weight of Water was pretty bad. K-19, The Widowmaker, was awful. And then she made The Hurt Locker, which I think was pretty bad. I thought it was an average film at best. And just on the backing of that winning Best Picture Oscar, the most embarrassing win, think all the way back to something like Forrest Gump, um, now her new film is being greeted as the favourite to win Best Picture Oscar. Just amazing. She's not a good film director. So anyway, my number 10 film... Where's it gone? It's an Australian one that came out at the back of last year in Australia but got an international release this year. 
a very flawed film, but also an incredibly powerful one, directed by Jonathan Toplitsky and called Burning Man. And it's a, well, it, you can't really give away much about the plot because its chief success is the way the, the plot is a kaleidoscope of cr- chronologically non-correct points all sort of converging and meeting up and revealing the story over a period of time it goes backwards and forwards in time and you're kind of lost for a long time as to what's going on and then this really horrible dreadful center of the movie reveals itself and it's a really if you've ever been in this situation that the main character in the movie's gone through it's a hard film to watch it is emotionally pretty devastating and it's got a great central performance by Matthew Good. Um, it's got very mixed reviews. It's, it's, it takes absolutely no prisoners. It's very uncompromising and it focuses on a, a guy that's a, a real scumbag, a chef who's out partying and picking up women left, right and centre and not looking after his young son who is about to uh, have a little chat here. Well, that's him uh, dropping his son off to school, and at that point, the son's actually living, I think, with the sister or with his wife, ex-wife's sister. But um, what happens is very unexpected. You think you're going to get a film about a reprobate misbehaving and not looking after his kid, and what you do get is so much more upsetting to watch. Um, And the way it actually unfolds is, really, I thought, really well done. And once he gets to the halfway stage... It's sort of clinging to your seats time. It's it's very upsetting emotionally, particularly if you've sort of been in the environment the movie takes you to after there. Um, yeah, it's got lots of faults, but I found it one of the most powerful films I saw this year. I could say a similar thing for Take This Waltz, which I nearly included, which is a film that's just so many failures in it, but is so powerful when it gets it right. Burning Man, I thought, was a much better film. And the director here has really, really tried something interesting and tried to deliver something in a very powerful way. And maybe he doesn't always succeed, but I thought it was a really, really strong film. That's Burning Man, my number 10, and my number 11 favourite album of the year. And um, the Twitter thing, I still don't know what's going on. My number 9 film, again, this is uh, sort of amplifying what a dud year it was for me in the movie front. Um, I had a look through a lot of films that I kind of liked, and there was an awful lot of them. And the films that I really liked, there just wasn't. But this is a film that was specifically released for Oscar season last year and got a 2012 release in this country, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Now, I never raved about it when I reviewed it back in January. Um, I said it was overrated, particularly for the screenplay. Um, and I stand by that as I think the screenplay was the least good thing about it. It was uh, pretty convoluted and didn't convey enough of the information that was required to understand the movie, which is a bit of a shame. But as far as a classy piece of movie making, I'm not sure. I mean, you turn down these films at your peril because there wasn't really anything else that was this classy released throughout the rest of the year. Great cast Gary Oldman, Colin Firth, uh, who's very good. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, isn't he a Doctor Who? Tom Hardy, who is absolutely everywhere these days. A whole And Mark Strong's very good in it as well. I think he's an underused actor. John Hurt, everyone in it was top-notch British talent. Uh, great script. R- r- well shot as well. Lovely pace. And the director, Thomas Alfredson, is the guy that directed the Swedish vampire movie Let the Right One In, which is one of the best films of the last 10 years. And he's got a very sedate style. 
a little bit too much in this film, but it's still a very classy film. And I might give it a rewatch because I only watched it the once just before the Oscars. So I think I'll watch that. But that's my number nine film, which is Tinker Taylor Soldiers, I think. Um, my number eight film, uh, it was a very low-key film and it came out at the start of the year uh, from British director and film star Paddy Considine, who is a great actor and has appeared in uh, Dead Man's Shoes and has also it was in Le Donkin's Scorsese, both of those Shane Meadows films, um, and he was brilliant in both of them. One, one a fearsome character and the other one a very comedic character. And he's since gone, he's also in 24-Hour Party People as the manager of New Order. Um, but he's uh, since written and directed a film called Tyrannosaur, starring Peter Mullen, who is one of my favourite actors in the world. He's the guy that won Best Actor in the Cannes Film Festival for My Name is Joe, and is also a brilliant director and writer of films as well. I think he did the Magdalene Sisters, and um, he stars in this as, as a, a full-blown alcoholic and a very violent man um, who exists in the gutter, literally and figuratively, who befriends Oliver Coleman, who's uh, Olivia Coleman, sorry, who works in a charity shop and is a very devout sort of lady, very Christian, and she refuses to judge him, and a bond forms between them, and then it becomes apparent that her life is far worse than his due to her Eddie Marson, who's another of my favourite British actors. He was recently in the Shane Meadows TV production of uh, This Is Britain 1986, I think, as the abusive husband in that, and he's also an abusive husband in this, and he's a frightening character. It's a very, very strong, harsh film, but there's, it's riven with humour and light, and the characters, the main couple, are so engaging. It's a wonderful film. It's tough going, but it is, it's an energising film in the end to watch. And I think I've got a clip from it. No, I don't. I thought I had a clip from um, Tyrannosaur. Um, but that's my number eight film of the year, directed by Paddy Considine and Peter Mullen and Olivia Coleman, and also Eddie Marson, uh, the three main stars of it. Well worth catching, even though it probably never even got cinematic release. Now, my number... You'll have to bear with me. I've got so many sheets of paper that I could actually have an origami convention. I did do that one. So, number seven is Barking Crazy Mel. Now, he made a film himself because no one else wants to play with him anymore. Uh, Mel Gibson, who had had an interesting sort of four or five years of it, um, that probably haven't boosted his image. Um, although those audio recordings, I was thinking back about those audio recordings where he's being incredibly abusive over the phone to his then-wife, and they really sound set up to me. They, it's not that, that I think that, they was, that he didn't say any of that stuff, but her glacial call just makes me think that she's overdubbed every part of her, what she said. Not that that gives uh, the madness that came out of his mouth makes it any better. The fact that it was even there in the first place, but a little sus anyway. But um, Mel Gibson was dead and buried as far as Hollywood was confirmed. Um, if he wasn't being accused of beating up women, he was accused of anti-Semitism. So... Pretty much two of the worst things. If he'd, and he did chuck racism in as well. So those are the three worst things you could possibly do in Hollywood. Um, but So he decided to make a film himself and release it himself, mainly as a pay, as you, pay-per-view, I think, on the TV and as a DVD release. 
And it's really good. It's called the terrible title in America, probably due to racial concerns. It's called um, What I Did Last Summer Vacation or something. But it's got the much better title worldwide of Get the Gringo. And it's directed by a guy he worked with on... um, The film is set in the Aztec era, which I can't even remember the title of, but called Adrian Grunberg. And it doesn't star a lot of other people that you'd have ever heard of. And it features him as a robber who escapes the police to cross by crossing the Mexican border. And some corrupt Mexican police find him and then realise he's got an awful lot of money on him and chuck him in the worst jail known to man, which was a real jail in Mexico that was really shut down for being uh, this appalling place that was just run by crime lords. Uh, only shut down a few years ago and they filmed the, f- the movie in that prison um, which gives it an incredibly uh, interesting atmospheric for what is a, quite a rote story, sort of in the vein of movies like Payback, if you remember that uh, Mel Gibson film, but I th- which I kind of liked. And I think this is a better film. And it follows him trying to get out of the prison, trying to get his money back, and dealing with his burgeoning relationship with a young Mexican boy and, and the boy's mother who are both in the jail, but the kid's being kept alive so that one day he can give up his liver and die as the drug overlord of the prison is dying from uh, cirrhosis or something and and he's going to take this child's liver at some point. So it all sort of builds up to a gun-toting climax. It's sort of... It's a film you've seen hundreds of times before, but the fact it's shot through with wonderful music, very, very... um, it makes a lot of use of local Mexican music and a lot of the cast obviously is Mexican because the majority of the movies is set in this jail. Um, it's got a good plot, a few too many monologues that make Mel sound a little bit cheesy, but he's hard in this, he's hard-edged. Uh, it doesn't aim for sentimentality across any of the uh, board and I thought it was one of the best action films, straight-up action films of the year with an honorary nod to Haywire as well, which came out. So my number seven film of the year, Get the Gringo. I'm going to have to make sure what I do with these. And probably after the next track, I'll do my five worst films of the year. Again, last year, my top three films last year were Drive, Tree of Life and Melancholia. And um, I absolutely love those films. And even something like The Guard, you know, there was nothing that good really that, that was released this year. And there was nothing as terrible as some of the films that were released last year as well. Uh, My number six film is from Indonesia, and I can't name another Indonesian film. And it didn't get a proper cinematic release, I think, in most areas around the world, but it got a massive DVD push, and it's called The Raid, or also The Raid Redemption. And it's directed by a Brit called Gareth Evans, and it's, um, it's basically the reduction of action films to its its core which is a group of police going into this tower block that's controlled by an evil criminal empire and working their way through this tower block and it doesn't sound that interesting and if you don't like guns and shooting and kicking and punching and camera angles then you probably won't enjoy it but it's the apex of that kind of cinema it's jaw-dropping it's really really well done uh it's it's been spectacular it's got a lot of acclaim um and it's sort of progressed a lot on word of mouth as well 
but it's a dazzling film. It's got some of the best stunts and fight sequences and shoot 'em up sequences of any movie released over the last few years. And everything else kind of pales into insignificance. Um, it has got a worldwide release, but I think mainly on DVD. Um, it's also written by Gareth Evans and shot by another Brit, Matt Flannery. So I'm not sure what was going on there because the film was produced and made in Indonesia. And it's shot in Jakarta as well. Um, so I don't know whether this was a, a, a government-funded foray into um, making movies or getting themselves on the map. But why they used a British director and, and cinematographer, I'm not even sure. But it certainly worked. And I wouldn't mind betting Gareth Evans has got the next Die Hard or whatever else lined up. It's kinetic beyond belief. It's got It just progresses scene by scene through this tower block. It kind of introduces a story, but... It's not an interesting story and it's a fairly obvious story, but it's just the the abundance of sensational jaw-dropping action sequences. The whole thing has a veneer of class over it as well. There's nothing too cheesy. There's nothing too sentimental. It is. It really does what it says on the tin. So there's my number six film, The Raid Redemption. Well worth capturing on DVD for a bit of fun. And don't worry about it being in subtitles as uh, screaming noises and thwacking sounds are the same throughout the world. I wanted to start with my most overrated movie of the year. Now, he may not be quite as bad a film director as Catherine Bigelow is, but he certainly is overrated. Wes Anderson, everyone kisses his backside, despite the fact the best film he's ever done, The Royal Tenenbaums, is alright. Um, and Moonrise Kingdom is a sure bet for a whole host of Oscar nominations. It's a very average film. There's not that much interesting about it apart from kookiness, and that's pretty much it all the way through. Great cast, great performances by Bruce Willis and Edward Norton, and the cast is astonishing. Bill Murray, Francis McDonald, Tilda Swinton, and so on. But a very bland film, a very... Uh, a film... His trademark to me is to create very sort of um, one-dimensional characters that then don't evolve and they're not interesting characters to me either he thinks they are because they do odd things but they're not um so oh it's not one of the worst films of the year it's 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 borderline average but um i thought i'd mention it as the most overrated movie of the year so my five worst films of the year the british film by nick love a director i love <laughs> who did Football Factory and The Firm. Uh, two films I think are very underrated, particularly Football Factory. And he should be a shoo-in when he's got Ray Winston starring in a remake of the hard-edged British cop 10 Govs a Day thriller uh, from the 1970s TV land, The Sweeney. And it's terrible. It's embarrassing. It's so bad. It's got Plan B, um, who's a rapper called well, Ben Drew in real life, and Ray Winston occupying the two main roles. Um, and it's got a lot of famous sort of TV actors in there, uh, particularly the guy that's currently doing very big business in Homeland, the star of that. I'm not sure if he's called Damien Lewis or not. Um, but it's a really bad, really obvious, cliched film. I can't believe that they managed to get through the script or the scenes uh, without cringing. And it it feels like you're watching a TV and a British TV film, a British TV cop show. And I always find British TV, although it's ramped up against American TV as being classier, as being really hammy. You see things like Spooks and that, which have got a fair amount of acclaim, and even Doctor Who. 
and they're so cheesy and hammy I can't watch them. And that's what this felt like to me. Um, it's well shot. Other than that, it feels like a TV production. The Sweeney's my number five. Number four should have been Gold Dust. Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston in a romantic comedy. Now, Jennifer Aniston's got a fair few bad ones to her bow, but usually they would have been terrible films anyway. You think pairing Paul Rudd and her together would be a wonderful film. It's two New Yorkers who leave the big city due to lack of funds and end up in a hippie commune. It's just not that funny. You spend the whole film waiting for these really wonderful cast of people to be funny, and they very, very rarely are. It's been a bit of a bomb at the box office as well. It's my number four, Wanderlust. Number three, um, Underworld Awakening, the fourth film starring Kate Beckinsale in her long-running Vampire vs. Werewolf saga. The first film was good. The first film was good because it had a great story, an unexpectedly developed story where all the characters sort of changed positions as the movie went. And even though it was a cliche piece of claptrap, it looked fantastic and it had a great story. This time around, the fourth film in the franchise is unwatchable. I tried to watch it twice and it is so poorly put together that you cannot focus on the whole movie. It is just a blur of action. The story is non-existent this time and it's still playing off the same themes and characters it was in the first one. A terrible film. Uh, not as bad as my number two film. I only recently saw the first Paranormal Activity film and the only thing it had going for it was the still camera and that to me was a big thing because you very ev hardly ever see an American film that hasn't got a lot of jump cuts, a lot of moving camera and the fact that someone would have the gall to put a camera on the spot and just film from then on. But it was rubbish. It was absolute garbage. There was nothing in it that I didn't expect. Um, the few scares in it I, I were telegraphed so far in advance, you could have written them down when you saw the opening shot. But that was a masterpiece compared to Paranormal Activity 4, which was absolutely terrible. And I'm glad I don't have to talk about it again. But my number one worst film of the year is because it's a film that annoyed me the most, and that is This Must Be The Place. Now, it starred Sean Penn, and it got a little bit of acclaim on release. I bet it doesn't get much acclaim going forward. Now, Sean Penn's an actor I've constantly changed my opinion of lately. Firstly, because some actors came out and said he only ever takes on roles that he thinks will get him nominated for an Oscar. Now, I kind of agree. He certainly played a lot of extreme characters or characters with disabilities and above all else he played the character Harvey Milk and he beat Mickey Rourke to an Oscar and that was a disgrace because Mickey Rourke deserved that Oscar and he, uh, Sean Penn's performance as Harvey Milk wasn't even good. I thought it was a pretty poor performance and everyone raved about that movie which I thought was pretty bad um, especially if you've seen The Life and Times of Harvey Milk a brilliant documentary which shows the character to be very different to Sean Penn's acting uh, which one reviewer correctly described as playing gay, like acting childlike. Um, he's in this film as a combination of Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter or, and Robert Smith. And that's his idea of this fading rock star living in Ireland that then goes to find his Jewish roots in America and hunt down somebody that was involved in the Holocaust, which sounds like an interesting concept, but it's, a, it's the worst put-together film of the year. It's by Paolo Sorrentino. It's got fantastic cast. Again, Francis McDormand turns up. 
but it's got scene after scene that is just shoved in there. There's a sequence where he goes and sees David B- uh, Byrne from Talking Heads, and they just shoehorn this sequence of Talking Heads playing that song, and then him having this really excruciatingly cringeable conversation about what it means to be a rock star. And nothing in the movie works. I kept waiting for it to get better, and it doesn't. It's interminable for the first sort of third of the film, and then it goes off on this road trip where things get a little bit better. But I left feeling very short-changed, very hard done by Sean Penn. I couldn't stand being in the same room as his character in this film. I think it's the worst performance of the year. And I'm saying that this must be the place, uh, which takes its name from the said Talking Heads song, is my number one worst film of 2012. It's terrible. There you go. On with some music. Film of the year was my probably my most unexpected sit down and be amazed. I thought nothing of it. It's uh, a film from Norway called Turn Me On Damn It. And I didn't review it that long ago. And it's one of the only films I think I gave a nine to this year. Um, it's based on a, Norway, a book by Olog Nilsson. And it's about a 15-year-old girl in a fictional town, small town, very, very small town in Norway, who experiences an American pie-like sexual awakening where she is rampant and she tries desperately to fulfill her libido with no success whatsoever. Um, It's a film that's primarily about uh, juvenile sex, but there's really none in it. It's really a harmless, genial, amiable film. It's a lovely film to watch. And one thing I liked about it is there's no good or bad characters in this film. Everyone is kind of likeable in some way or other, and no one's really held up as being a villain. People just make mistakes, and then they say sorry, and you kind of forgive them because they've just made a mistake and they're a teenager. And and what happens is she's um, part of a group of three girls going to school. She's relentlessly overpowered by her awakening libido and thinks about sex all of the time, which incurs lots of dream sequences where she's talking to her friends and even her girlfriends and they go off on these wild, mad, passionate, lovemaking romps and then she wakes up again. But she goes to, um, she gets drunk on beer, uh, probably for the first time at uh, like a party and ends up telling all her friends that the guy that she likes got his thing out and touched her with it which doesn't go down well and she becomes ridiculed by the entire school and becomes an outcast and lives this solitary existence and 70 minutes later the whole thing is wrapped up nicely but it's beautiful, it's very engaging and it's overpoweringly charming. I'm not sure who the main girl in it is but she is fantastic and it hasn't even got the star. I've got the Wikipedia printout in here. It's directed by Janique Seisted-Jacobson and it deserves a lot more acclaim than it's getting. It's, it's so brief and so slight, it probably will never get that. But it's a guaranteed winner. I really guarantee this film. If anyone's worried about uh, a, an austere film from Norway that's going to be hard work, this isn't. It's fun all the way through. It's imaginative. All the characters are wonderful and likeable. All the performances are natural and real. It's a truly enjoyable film. And I do remember uh, turning to cast my girlfriend at the end and going, oh, I really, really like that film. Um, so it's my number five best film of the year. Turn me on, damn it. And what are we up to now? My fifth album prior to the new one. Uh, my number four film of the year is another very low-key film directed by an actor, much like Tyrannosaur 
which was earlier in the list at number eight. Um, this is a film called Wild Bill, which seems to have gone very unnoticed. Now, unlike Tyrannosaur, which is like a Ken Loach movie and is excruciating to get through, Wild Bill isn't. It seems like it's going to be from the setup, which is uh, Charlie Creed Miles, who plays Bill Hayward, a prisoner, uh, out after eight years on parole, returning to find his two young sons, played by Will Poulter and Jimmy, his, uh, the other son, Sammy Williams, on their own as their mother has vanished to Spain and left them. And Dean, who's played by Will Poulter, has been working on a building site under age, supporting the other brother. And you expect this to go one way, but it doesn't. It goes the exact opposite. And this is uh, basically the dad comes home and he doesn't want to be there with his kids. And the kids don't want him there either. And this is one of their first meetings. Made Tyrannosaur, Gary Oldman made the unbearable and brilliant Neil by Mouth. Uh, Tim, oh, I can't remember his name now, but he made the, the War Zone. Tim, the guy that was in Reservoir Dogs, Tim Roth. And all of those films are brilliant. And so did um, the Scottish actor that starred in Tyrannosaur. He's always directed uh, a couple of very, very strong films as well. Ned's, which was one of my uh, top films last year. And this one's directed by Dexter Fletcher. Now, apart from having a silliest name in the world, Dexter Fletcher is known to people of my generation, and I'm 40, um, as the star of Press Gang, where he pretended to be an American for several years opposite Julia Swala, who ended up on Absolutely Fabulous. And um, he's probably known, widely known as the star, one of the stars of Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, one of the main characters. And I've never rated him really as an actor. I don't really rate anyone in Lock, Stock as an actor, to be honest. But he's a much, much better director than he is an actor. I was very surprised by this film. It's called Wild Bill. It's my fourth best film of the year. And it is... It avoids so many cliches, it goes off on so many rewarding tangents, and he shows a very imaginative lightness of touch as a director as well. He seems constantly self-assured, he doesn't seem to want to make a punishing film, he seems to understand that he can drag the audience through this, kicking and screaming, or make them merrily float through it, and still deliver as powerful a story, and he does. And it's a very watchable film, it hasn't got massive wild release, but to me it's one of the best of the year. The main three, particularly Charlie Creed Miles as the doofus dad just out of jail, who of course gets sucked back into his old life, uh, through his youngest son, Jimmy, who gets preyed upon by a local dealer. It's actually got a very good setup because the local drug dealer sees this guy come out of jail and he assumes that because he was a hard man back in the day, he's going to be a threat to him as things go forward. And he's not. He wants nothing to do with it at all. Um, he actually gets trapped there by his two kids once the social services realise because he's so dumb. The dad actually goes to the social services and explains to them that the kids are fine living on their own even though the oldest is 15. So he's basically forced to remain with the kids um, until this whole scenario is set out where they can actually live on their own. And he has to deal with his youngest son being preyed upon by the local drug dealer. He's, he's only 11 years old. And he gets sort of sucked into the lower level dealers and the dad. And it goes through a, a sort of sequence that's familiar to people that have watched films like um, My Name is Joe and, and stuff like that. 
where um, a, a character that has had a bad past ends up, you know, going through all of this and coming out redemption and all of that. But I thought it was a really good, interesting, imaginative film. An outstanding first effort by Dexter Fletcher. It shows a great deal of range and control in this. And it's my fourth best of the year, Wild Bill. I mentioned the Norwegian film Turn Me On, Damn It was my biggest surprise of the year. It wasn't. <laughs> it was my second biggest surprise Welcome surprise. My first is the second Norwegian film I have in my top five films of the year. At number three, Headhunters by Morten Taildom. I almost forgot about it. It came out back in Norway. Well, no, hold on. It came out in Norway last year. It came, sorry, it came out in August in Norway last year, but I think it got a 2012 release, and I'm pretty sure I saw it around six months ago. Again, whether it got a cinematic release, it may have, as it got a great deal of acclaim. Um, yeah, Morton Tildum, uh, he uh, directed the film and it stars, this is another one, they don't seem to like Norwegian actors because they don't put anything about them in, in Wikipedia, but the lead character in it who's a diminutive man who works for a recruitment agency and he's got a statuesque blonde wife and he desperately loves her and she's a, a supermodel and he's this short guy who thinks that he's buying her love, and he's actually not, but he thinks that he's buying her love. So he can he spends way beyond his means. And to supplement that, he interviews lots and lots of people who are going for very high-end corporate jobs, and he talks to them about art. And the reason he's doing this is because he's got a sideline as an art thief, and he has this whole setup where he manages to break into people's houses, squirrel away, multi-million dollar pieces of art and he's got a fence and a transport network all set up with these individuals that work with him that ferry the artwork out and he tries it on with this 20 million dollar plus uh, I can't remember if it's a Rubens or it's a very famous painting that he comes across and it's an incredible film it's it's very unexpected it's very funny the lead character, who's this sort of diminutive guy that is obviously very upset about being short, thinks that all these Lotharios are, are having sex with his wife, um, and that he's, you know, this he can only get her because he's worth money and he hasn't really got any money and the walls are closing in. And he gets into this situation that eventually involves murder and everything else, but it's never what you expect it to be. Every time you expect it to go one way, if you're expecting it to become nasty, it becomes hysterically funny. If you're expecting it to become sentimental, it becomes chilling and disturbing. It's got a little bit of everything in it. There are some shocking scenes in it, some ecstatically funny scenes in it. And the plot resolves itself in a way that it's one of those sort of life-affirming things when the way the wife plays out the movie and his life sort of gradually comes back round again it's a really entertaining and exciting thriller that is way funnier and way zanier and way more out there than any other film I saw this year. Very, very imaginative. Morton Tildum, Headhunters, my second Norwegian pick in my top five films of the years. Um, get this, it was the second most, uh, second highest opening weekend in Norwegian history because 100,000 Norwegians saw it. <laughs> That's amazing. I remember seeing a gold record in Finland with something like 5,000. Um, so I thoroughly recommend you hunting this movie down. It's exciting and fun and dynamic and exactly what you would kill for a Hollywood movie to be made like. And that's my number four film of the year.
No, number three film of the year, Headhunters. And my number three album of the year, we're in the middle of the Holy Trinity. My number two film, Racing Along, you're with Julian on the brown note. A film I virtually put at number one, and uh, I'm in still in two minds, and it's a film I didn't expect to, The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Christopher Nolan's third and final entry in the Batman franchise. Three hours long. I didn't see it for months after it came out. I was upset with all the fanboy adulation and people going on and on and on about it. The first two films are excellent, and I knew what I thought I was getting. But what I actually got is a film that, if not better than The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight might be a more impressive film. It's a more enjoyable film to watch. Even though it's near three hours long, I actually thought the pacing and the tone of this film were a lot more easygoing than watching The Dark Knight, which labours for sort of 30 minutes and then has a last hour, which is quite punishing to get through as it seems to end and then it goes through another sequence. All brilliant sequences, but there's only so much you can fit into a film. And this time he's almost guilty of doing the same, trying to fit too much in, but doesn't quite do it. And the screenplay, I think, is better at ironed out than the first one. It's it's almost a lower-key film, which is quite odd. Christian Bale does a lot more acting in this than I've seen in the previous two films, and it's great not to have that love interest, as I hated that character. And I wasn't interested in either of the actresses that played his love interest in the first two, in Batman Begins or The Dark Knight. I thought it was a distracting character. Here, the main female characters, uh, who are Marion Cotillard, who's just amazing, um, and uh, a very, very strong Anne Hathaway, aren't really love interests. They sort of float around as equal characters. The story is very interesting. It's got the best story, I think, of the three movies. And as far as flat-out entertainment, I would say this was my number one film of the year. I was very surprised. I love Christopher Nolan's films, but both Inception and The Dark Knight was such heavy going and so overburdened by having too much in. It was. I felt the space in this film. I felt there was a, a wider range of human emotion, even more human emotion on display than the previous two films put together. And Michael Caine was excellent. He delivers quite a strong performance in this film as well. Tom Hardy was uh, created a very strange villain and a, a very memorable one. Maybe not as vivid as the Joker in The Dark Knight, but still a memorable character. And it had very uh, dystopian uh, capitalist themes, which are very relevant as well, and got it paid out on in America a little bit. But I liked it, and everyone seems to have forgotten what happened on the first weekend it was released when that psycho went and killed a load of people in a cinema. But there you go, my number two film of the year, The Dark Knight Rises. So my ten films of the year, Burning Man, the Australian film, Tyrannosaur, British one, at nine. The Raid, the Indonesian film at... Oh, sorry, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy at nine. Tyrannosaur at eight. The Raid, Redemption at six. The Indonesian beat em up. Norwegian film Turn Me On, Dammit at 5, Wild Bill at 4, Headhunters, another Norwegian film at 3, and The Dark Knight at 2. And my number one film of the year, also starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, is a sci-fi flick, Looper, which featured a good performance, a very good, probably career best performance, from none other than Bruce Willis, directed first-time director Rian Johnson. It's done great business as well. It's really worth seeing. It's about hitmen that are have their prey sent back in time. It's a time travel film, but with a very unique twist, a 1930s gangster feel to it, and some beautiful cinematography. 
It's a lot more existential than I thought it was going to be. And the most interesting film of the year, certainly the one I sat back and went, probably for the first time, I went, oh, wow, that was a really good film. So Looper, my number one film of the year, my top 10 albums or top 